We're absolutely thrilled uh, today to have our uh, former colleague Dominic Mueller back here uh, presenting. Dominic was a, uh, a visiting scholar here uh, at the Asian Studies Center at St. Anson's uh, a few years ago, doing um, some work on Brunei at that point, uh, working through some field work that he had had. That's going to be a part of what he's talking about today. Um, but what he's presenting here is really the early stages of uh, a new research project, and he has a large five-year grant uh, for this that, where he's setting up a research team um, at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Halle, and it's um, looking broadly at the bureaucratization of Islam and its socio-legal dimensions uh, in Southeast Asia. And so uh, I, this is a, a great opportunity. We like to use this seminar sometimes for you know, sort of completed research uh, projects, sometimes for, for people just back from the field to kind of make sense of what they're doing, and then sometimes for projects like this that are in their early stages. Um, and so, so I'll also say that, that the Asian Studies Center at St. Anthony's College is um, a sort of collaborating partner uh, in this as well. And so um, in addition to just giving feedback to Dominic today or talking with him afterwards, you know, if, if there's a, a way that you'd like to be involved in this research, you know, certainly be in touch um, and, and, and see how this develops over time. Um, so I'll let him explain the rest of it, but uh, please join me in welcoming Dominic Mueller. Thank you very much, Matt, uh, and thank you all for coming. Um, as Matt already said, it's a new project that I'm presenting, so in its, it's in its earliest formative stage, so to speak, it was just granted and I just started working on it. Um, and the research team that I will lead actually doesn't really exist, it only exists on paper right now and the applications are coming in. So um, what I want to say <coughs> is that I'm, I would be really grateful for your thoughts, for your criticism, for your feedback. On, on how to further uh, develop this project and its framework. Um, what I will do now in the next 45 or 50 minutes is uh, I will first uh, tell you a little bit about the general structure of the project, about the conceptual framework, some research questions, methodological questions, and then I will present a case study that I've been working on uh, before the project actually started uh, in the context of Brunei. And <laughs> I will give you then some uh, very early materials from Singapore as well that I contrast with the case of Brunei in the end and, uh, and I hope we will have a fruitful discussion afterwards. Um, so the group uh, consists of uh, me as the principal investigator as well as three PhD students and one MA student. That's the core group under the grant but there will be more students working also uh, with us uh, who are not part of this core group and I hope to bring in more people to the wider circle and uh, there is this shared meta-conceptual framework that I will talk about today. Um, and each of the PhD students will produce an ethnographic case study that will speak to that shared meta-theoretical framework. Um, and these uh, case studies then very much depend on the ideas and creativity of those PhD students. I, in addition to the conceptual guidance uh, that I will do and to the PhD supervision, um, I will also do two case studies, one on Brunei and one on Singapore, uh, that will hopefully complement the others as well. And I should add that this is a program, this Emmy Noether program that is funding the project, uh, is part of the German Research, Research Foundation's uh, initiative to support young scholars who two to four years after their PhD can apply for this program and then they are able to supervise PhD projects, which normally in Germany you can only do as a full professor. So this is actually the only program under which uh, young scholars like me are allowed to do that and I'm really yeah, thrilled about it <laughs> and uh, 
looking forward to get it started. So the project duration is five years. We <coughs> have lots of activities, regular workshops. Uh, we will have a conference in Germany, a conference in Singapore. Um, we will have regular closed reading group sessions. We will bring in guest lecturers, um, have visiting scholars. So lots of exciting activities are ahead now. Um, there are two international corporations uh, and one, and I'm very happy and proud to say, uh, as, as Matt mentioned before, is with the Asian Studies Center here at St. Anthony's College and the other is with the Center for Asian Legal Studies at the National University of Singapore. Um, so the basic aim of the project is to develop a new understanding of Islamic discourse in the context of state power in Southeast Asia, broadly speaking. Um, and that is from an anthropological perspective, grounded in long-term fieldwork, um, very much focusing on actors' perspectives, practices on the ground, uh, and positioned in anthropological debates. And I hope you don't mind if I'm, if I'm sitting down. Uh, so, to begin with, um, there is this widespread notion that Islam, unlike the Catholic Church, doesn't have centralized leadership, centralized institutions, um, formalized hierarchies of authority. But uh, if we look closer, we can see in various contemporary settings of modern nation states that there are, in fact, Islamic hierarchies, formalized Islamic hierarchies, um, where um, actually particularly in states where Islam has acquired politically powerful positions, um, such as, for example, in, let's say, Brunei, Malaysia, or Iran, where Islam is the official religion of the state constitutionally, but also in more secularly oriented countries like, for example, Turkey, Singapore, Indonesia, although the term secular is a problem of its own. Um, and uh, following the transnational waves of Islamic revivalism since the 1970s, several governments have empowered state-sponsored Islamic institutions or have further empowered pre-existing institutions to guide Islamic discourse influence Islamic discourse in line with certain political interests or preferences. Um, in the context of Southeast Asia, uh, several governments have empowered such administrative bodies uh, to guide Islamic discourse, for example in Brunei, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, and to some extent also in Thailand and, uh, and Myanmar, as I'm just starting to learn uh, these latter two cases. And the approaches, motivations, and spheres of influence in each of these cases differ widely. Um, so uh, on the one hand, the approaches by the bureaucracies, the motivations behind the governments to empower these bureaucracies differ widely, but they share the intention and practice to formalize categorical schemes of Islam and create rules, sometimes binding, sometimes not, about Islam-related public communication. Um, national histories and contexts differ widely, the political context, the social context, the legal context, hugely diverse in the Southeast Asian context. But nevertheless, uh, states try to exert control over the direction Islam is taking in their territories, and these bureaucracies are instruments in that process, or in that uh, intention. Um, the project works with some foundational assumptions uh, that I will present you now. The first is that the bureaucratization of Islam, as I understand it, is not synonymous with an institutionalization of Islam. It is a wider socio-legal phenomenon, and in that sense, the bureaucratization of Islam transcends its institutional boundaries. And in that sense, it has significant consequences for the everyday life of various affected social actors and social groups, 
It has significant consequences for the role of Islam in public life and public discourse and for the very meaning or meanings in the plural form of Islam in state and society. Another very important point for the project is that the bureaucratization of Islam is integral to the state's exercise of classificatory power, a term that I'm deriving from Bourdieu, who is using it in his sociology of the state in a very different context. Um, and so the bureaucratization of Islam is integral to the state's exercise of classificatory power in the religious, social, and juridical fields. That is the next assumption. Uh, the furthermore, the bureaucratization of Islam operates with its own characteristic codes, mechanisms, procedures, symbols, a language of bureaucracy. So what we have is a translation of Islam into that language of bureaucracy, a transformative rewriting of Islam. It doesn't mean that uh, before the translation there's something stable that is now um, something different. It is dynamic in any case. Islam, Islam in, social, in the social world is always a discourse and is as such inevitably dynamic, but something is happening in this transformation process, and maybe it's even less dynamic once it is formalized and bureaucratized, but that's an open question. So uh, changing forms inevitably cause changes on the level of meaning. You know the, the famous phrase, McLuhan, the medium is the message. Um, so when forms change, meanings change. And that's why the project wants to study the bureaucratization of Islam, not only in functional terms, so that would be power or interest-related terms, but also in hermeneutic terms, so on the level of meaning production. And I will come back to that. Um, there is a general consensus, and that's a common way of looking at the bureaucratization of Islam, that bureaucracy, uh, or not only of Islam, that bureaucracy is a technology of power. It has to do with processes of standardization, then there come certain processes of education, of, of normalization in the social life, that you know, the role of the bureaucracy is normalized, its power is normalized, and that it exerts power in the context of, of society. Um, there are disciplining mechanisms involved in some contexts more and others less, uh, because the meanings, as I said, of the bureaucratization can widely differ. But so technology of power, that is one of these functional aspects. Um, at the same time, bureaucracy from an anthropological perspective um, should be seen as a productive arena for social life, an arena for creative political action, which stands in contrast to the Weberian, Max Weberian ideal type of bureaucracy, which uh, ideal typically would be um, something of a, a play, an institutionalized form of impersonal perfection where bureaucrats objectively carry out uh, tasks that have been decided elsewhere in a mechanical fashion. And uh, so several anthropologists have uh, problematized that view, and I don't intend to repeat that. Um, and actually, I would say even overly obsessively problematized that view. But uh, of course, it's part of the state of the art, and it should be mentioned when I say that uh, bureaucracy is a productive arena for social life. Uh, Accordingly, the bureaucracies are living organisms. They are not monolithic. A lot of things are happening in the bureaucracies. They are internally contested. There are struggles over hegemony within the bureaucracies, some openly um, happening, some more implicitly happening. There are different actors within the bureaucracies that try to make the bureaucracies work for themselves, for their interests. They have different narratives that compete with each other, that support certain normative claims. So a lot of things are happening in bureaucracies. Um, at the same time, state bureaucracies, state-sponsored bureaucracies, or partly state-sponsored bureaucracies are not, uh, that, that's not the only game in town, but uh, there are, of course, also processes of bureaucratization beyond the state that may, may either coexist or compete with the state bureaucracies. 
So there may even be some counter-hegemonic form of bureaucratization of Islam, and, and that is the case in certain Southeast Asian contexts. Um, for the project, the bureaucratization of Islam should not be studied uh, only in empirical terms, descriptively, as an empirical fact, but it should be theorized. Um, and it should be theorized as a social phenomenon, as a social-legal phenomenon, um, as I said, collaboratively and in comparative perspective in, uh, in different in different Southeast Asian field sites. So there are some initial, there's actually a large catalog of research questions and I will only uh, tell you some of them. And before I tell you uh, about these questions, I should add that in anthropology, usually when we conduct projects, we have different phases. Um, so in the beginning, when you go to the field, you have this more explorative <coughs> phase where you, you go there with some questions in mind. Uh, you don't go there with, there's this phrase, you don't, uh, you don't go there with, uh, or you should go there with an open mind, but not with an empty mind. Uh, and in that sense, so these questions now are just the first questions. And you revise these questions in the process of data gathering. You self-critically question your own questions. And then you may develop new questions, or you, you may deepen those questions, depending on the things you learn in the field from your interlocutors. So th that is what these questions are at this particular stage. Um, and. There are two field sites where these questions will be asked practically. One are the bureaucracies themselves, which are, of course, not exactly the natural environment for traditional anthropological fieldwork. But so one will be the state bureaucracies themselves and or certain bureaucratic institutions. And the other will be social groups who are directly affected by the state bureaucracies practices and by their attempted exercise of classificatory power. Um, so the overarching broad question is which social and legal dynamics can be observed when states try to bureaucratize Islam? Um, at the same time, how does the inner life of Islamic bureaucracies look like? What is really happening on the ground? Um, and how does, and that is very important, the imposition of, or the attempted imposition of categorical schemes of Islam by bureaucracies affect the everyday life of social actors? And how do these social actors actively respond to that? Uh, how do they position themselves uh, in, that, in that process? What does it do to them? But what do they maybe do to that process? Um, now, in the anthropology of bureaucracy, it's not so much only about what anthropology does, but also what, uh, sorry, what bureaucracy does, but also what bureaucracy is. So, and how this, what bureaucracy is, is related to what it does. Um, one of the colleagues in anthropology who are work maybe one of the more famous ones also beyond the discipline who are working in the field of the anthropology of bureaucracy is David Graeber and one of the things he says about uh, what a bureaucracy is and does is that there is this bureaucratic imposition of simple categorical schemes on the world to quote uh, James Scott state simplification so imposition of simple categorical schemes on the world that are often coercively imposed by policing agencies, and it's about the right to define the situation. So that is one particular view on bureaucracy. Um, that uh, is related, although it, is, it does not reference it, it's related to what Bourdieu earlier described as the state's exercise of classificatory power. Um, so according to Bourdieu, in addition to law enforcement, the state is involved in practices of social categorization through regulatory agencies. And these regulatory agencies are bureaucratic agencies. These agencies organize the population along certain classificatory lines. In the context of Bourdieu, that would be uh, classifications such as race, uh, sorry, such as class, 
gender, that's in this debate about symbolic power, also relevant, uh, that may also be related to ethnicity, indigeneity, good citizenship, or, or the politics of numbers, that's all related to the power exercised by the state through bureaucracies. And although this is not relevant for Bourdieu, that can include, and in the case of Malaysia and Brunei, does include classifications such as good believers adhering to state-sponsored doctrines or deviant actors who endanger the true faith as defined by the government, and, or possibly as standardized by the government. Then there are diverse responses to these attempted exercises of power. Some people internalize hegemonic classification, some subversively or pragmatically, pragmatically adapt to it. Others openly challenge the bureaucracy's right to define the situation. So there are many things happening. And uh, what really happens is best studied on the ground by actually observing it, rather than uh, making much uh, or <coughs> coming up with much hypothesis. Um, so what my project wants to do is to bring <coughs> the bureaucratization of Islam uh, to the anthropology of bureaucracy. Now, the anthropology of bureaucracy is a subfield, increasingly systematized subfield of anthropology since the 1990s. Um, there are really a lot of studies now being done, and uh, however, Islamic bureaucracies are not very much part of these debates. Religious bureaucracies in general, there are some exceptions, but Islamic bureaucracies, and particularly in Southeast Asia, are largely absent from these debates. Um, that doesn't mean that there are no anthropological studies of Islamic bureaucratic institutions, but those studies that exist, and many of them are very good, uh, don't reflect upon, upon what bureaucracy is and then apply this. So in, in that more narrow sense of the anthropology of bureaucracy, it's about reflecting upon bureaucracy and not just describing what bureaucracy does or having it as a side aspect with another focus. So my project wants to do that. Uh, and in other disciplines, actually, there's a lot of work on the bureaucratization of religion in Southeast Asia, including Islam. Um, but then again, as I see it with some important exceptions, that is, they rarely reflect upon uh, bureaucratization as a phenomenon, and especially not as a social process. Um, so there are, in other disciplines, some really interesting collaborative, comparative works on state and Islam in Southeast Asia. For example, Tim Lindsay and Kerstin Stina have this wonderful three volumes book series on state and Islam in Southeast Asia as legal scholars, but nothing like this exists in anthropology where actually different long-term ethnographic fieldwork projects come together and then uh, this is uh, compared under a shared uh, meta-conceptual framework. So that is, uh, in that sense, uh, we, we want to do something new and we want to produce ethnographic explorations of powerful government institutions in Southeast Asia in that collaborative framework. Now we want to go beyond established perspectives. The common view of the bureaucratization of religion in political science especially is that it's about co-optation. It's about neutralizing potential or existing religious opposition. So there's this top-down strategy by states to neutralize political opposition, to, to bring those people into the state, to, to, to set the agenda and avoid that they set the agenda. That is the common view. Uh, but we want to go beyond that. And uh, there is also a common approach that focuses on policies, official policies, official discourses of political leaders, <coughs> elites, and high-ranking decision makers. And again, we want to go beyond that as well. Another thing that the project wants to do, and that is not very much done in, uh, in these political science works, is that we want to be attentive to the different levels of normativity and actual practice. 
um, to cite a colleague, Colin Hoek, who is working in the anthropology of bureaucracy, and I briefly quote, and I promise this is the only thing I read, um, rules can never be enforced enough. Bureaucratic actors are masking the exercise of power in the guise of an always emergent but never attained perfect order. And that's what he calls the God trick, performed by universalizing authoritative bureaucracies. And this God trick, of course, acquires a new and unintended meaning in the context of religious bureaucracies that operate with their own universalist assumptions. And if these, when these two come together, these two universalist mechanisms, so to speak, interesting things can, can happen, I would say. At the same time, anthropologists tend to emphasize that norms don't only reflect behavior, but they may sometimes even be used to conceal behavior. Um, so you may relate to norms, but actually you're doing something completely different. And that's best observed again on the ground through actual fieldwork. Um, the project will study the bureaucratization of Islam together with involved actors. That is very important. So we will not just write about them. Uh, but uh, the plan is to discuss our assumptions and findings with involved actors in the Islamic bureaucracies, um, being fully aware that perspectives are different, but that's exactly the interesting thing. Uh, there is one method in anthropology, it's called the parasite uh, approach, and that is used uh, to study in particularly powerful institutions and, and, and to create epistemic partnerships with your interlocutors to jointly reflect upon your work and their work and then see what happens in the process. And that is the intention to do and we will see to which extent and in which field sites this is possible, but we will certainly try. And in some cases it is certainly possible. Um, now moving from the more dry part uh, to Southeast Asia. Um, in Southeast Asia there is an enormous diversity of bureaucratized Islam. Uh, there are, for example, national contexts where states have standardized certain state brands of Islamic truth and heresy, for example, uh, in the context, and, and based on sanctions, I mean, real hard sanctions. In Malaysia, that is the case. In Brunei, that is the case, where you have these formalized lists of so-called deviant teachings. So then the bureaucracy makes this classificatory scheme and, and uh, produces this list, and then these deviant teachings are banned. And for example, Shia Islam is banned as deviant in 11 of 14 Malaysian states, because in Malaysia, Islamic legislation is federally organized. And in Brunei, there's also such a list. And, at this, and in both Brunei and Malaysia, secularism um, and religious pluralism are constantly condemned as incompatible with Islam by the Islamic state bureaucracy. Although the cases of Brunei and Malaysia are very different, but there are some commonalities. But then in Southeast Asia, we also have cases like Indonesia and Singapore, where comparably more integrative, more pluralistic uh, versions of Islam are bureaucratized by the state. Um, although, again, Singapore and Indonesia in many aspects could not be more different. But that just to, to give you a little glimpse of, uh, of, of uh, some interesting similarities and differences in, in the bureaucratization of Islam in Southeast Asia. Now moving to the first case study that I will present, uh, Brunei Darussalam. And that is something I've been working on for my postdoc uh, since 2012. And actually, I had written my MA thesis on Brunei in 2007, 2008. And I'm just returning to that. And now I'm integrating it into the larger project. Now, in Brunei, the government has formalized uh, its own particular brand of state Islam, uh, which is integral to the state's exercise of classificatory power in many fields. And as we, sh as we shall see in Brunei, this uh, bureaucratization of Islam not only functions to serve 
political interests, existential political interests of the <coughs> government and its elites, but it's also part of a meaning-making process. Certain meanings of Islam are produced in that process that are unique to the country's discursive context. So again, functional and hermeneutic analysis. Now, until quite recently, uh, there was very little international interest in or substantial knowledge of the Sultanate of Brunei Darussalam. Um, if at all, then usually Brunei appeared internationally in the yellow press with um, colorful reports about the Sultan's spectacular properties, his, you see the golden Rolls Royce, or uh, his sports car collections, or spectacular royal weddings that were then presented in this colorful language of oriental fairy tales. But even in neighboring countries, there was very little interest in or knowledge of the domestic affairs of Brunei and the, the political scenery. And that changed suddenly and somewhat dramatically in uh, 2013 and 2014, when the Sultan announced a far-reaching Islamic legal reform uh, that included uh, certain elements of Islamic criminal law, most notably hudud and qizaz punishments that in some of its many, many provisions would, as the maximum punishment, uh, include death penalties for religiously defined offenses such as blasphemy, uh, homosexual intercourse, and, and several others. Um, so then, actually, this legal reform was planned since the mid-1990s and openly spoken about in Brunei since the mid-1990s. wasn't a secret, but just nobody noticed it outside of Brunei. And then when the Sultan had declared in 2013 that it would be enforced in 2014. Actually, still nobody noticed it. But in 2014, when there was the speech that it will now be enforced, the first of three stages, then there was this international media outcry. And uh, there were these, all these reports about the Sultan implementing the Sharia, as if Sharia law wouldn't have existed in Brunei before. Um, and uh, so the Sultan of the Stone Age wants to stone gay people, and so on. These were then the headlines by people who never have been to Brunei and don't know anything about Brunei. And uh, international celebrity persons were protesting in front of a hotel, the, the Beverly Hills Hotel, owned by the Sultan in California, and uh, asked to stop the Sultan. Um, and Fox News came up with headlines such as, Welcome to the Hotel Sharia. So Brunei was suddenly a topic. And uh, for me, who had been doing uh, research in Brunei, uh, for somebody who did research in Brunei, and people really disencouraged me from continuing that for my PhD, because they said nobody's interested in Brunei. Um, then suddenly press people call me and because there are no Brunei experts in Germany <laughs> and so yeah, dramatic changes also on the personal level. Um, now I, because there is so little known about Brunei, I will give you just some quick contextual information. Brunei is also known as the Shellfare State, uh, alluding to the important role of Brunei Shell Petroleum and alluding to its enormous resources in, in oil and gas. Um, Citizens of Brunei do not pay income tax. They enjoy subsidized housing. There is a free health care, or largely free health care. There, there's a free pension from the age of 60. Previously, it was 55. And around 25% of the population are working for the government under very generous conditions. And actually, among the Malay majority population, many more people work for the government. It's really a large percentage. There are annual personal gifts by the Sultan given to, to his subjects. And um, you can hand over your so-called white envelopes to the sultan when he appears in public, which he frequently does, often unannounced, and convey certain wishes. And there's this patron-client relationship. So it's the, the caring monarch, the generous monarch. Uh, he provides welfare, and you are loyal to him, and that's the social contract, so to speak, or the, the political contract. 
Um, now, uh, the Sultan is officially, and according to the official genealogy, he is a descendant of Prophet Muhammad. Um, he is, according to the constitution, the head of the Muslim community. And he is also described in the government literature and all literature on Islam and Brunei is government literature as the vice regent of, of God on earth. Um, while at the same time sovereignty rests in Allah alone. <coughs> in the little existing social scientific literature on Brunei, Brunei society is commonly described as apathetic, docile, streamlined, and there is an undeniable tendency after four decades of policies of depoliticizing the population, but I don't think it's that, it's that simple, and the problem is that just nobody does research on these topics. Uh, and that's why we don't know uh, anything about these fairs beyond the official story. Another narrative, of course, is that Brunei is boring and nobody wants to go there, uh, but uh, I'm bored by arguing against it, to be honest. Um, so Brunei is the only Southeast Asian country that has, from the moment of its declaration of independence, unambiguously been defined as an Islamic state by its government, without any opposition, be it a secular opposition or an Islamist opposition, openly challenging um, Brunei is an absolute monarchy and as such the only absolute monarchy in Southeast Asia so in many aspects it's really unique in the Southeast Asian context now it has this national ideology an official national ideology that is also uh, called the national philosophy or the concept of the nation the concept Negara um, interchangeably and that is called MIB Malayu Islam Baraja commonly re referred to by its acronym MIB and it's, it's one of these pillar models that you find in other Southeast Asian states, like in, in Indonesia, it's the Panchasila. In Malaysia, it's the Ruku Negara. And in France, you have a three pillars model in Germany. So that's a typical tool of modern nation building. And in Brunei, these three pillars are then the supremacy of Malay culture and language. So the supremacy of the Malays, basically, the supremacy of Islam, more precisely Islam as defined by the government. Uh, and the third is the monarchy. Um, the acronym was invented or was first announced as a national philosophy in 1984, um, but it is presented as representing six centuries of continuity since the first sultan uh, converted to Islam in the late 14th century. And then, of course, some foreign scholars have criticized MIB, have deconstructed it as a modern tool of, 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 of propaganda, basically, of creating legitimacy where no democratic processes create legitimacy otherwise. Brunei government scholars have argued, well, the acronym may be new, but it adequately sums up the very character of our nation. So these are these debates. And uh, just to tell you that they exist. So the classificatory scheme of MIB um, is propagated by various institutions, by various government <coughs> institutions. Um, first of all, we have this, uh, the Majlis Tertinggi MIB, which is the <coughs> MIB Supreme Council, and I had the pleasure of having my office as a visiting researcher right next door uh, to the MIB Supreme Council Secretariat, which gave me very good uh, access uh, and to have really open exchanges also about the topic. And the MIB uh, Supreme Council is also described as a mini-cabinet by one of its former leaders in the absence of democratic institutions uh, independent civil society, the Islamic bureaucracy is really the most powerful political actor outside the royal family in Brunei. And the MIB Supreme Council is very important. Uh, the propagation of MIB takes place more systematically since around 1990, and it is done on three levels. That is schools, that is the general public, and um, 
universities and colleges. So if you're a Bruneian citizen, you cannot get any degree in any discipline without passing the MIP module. And I did some participant observation in MIB classes at the University of Dar es Salaam. I spoke with students, I spoke with the lecturers, and it's quite interesting how they switch between the official role and the unofficial role. Um, and, uh, but then, like, I mean, the, the official transcript, so to speak, you know, there's this distinction by, by James Scott between the hidden transcript and the official transcript, and, and that distinction is very strong in Brunei, and it's very difficult to get close to the hidden transcript, but it does exist, and even MIB lecturers are actually sometimes surprisingly critical about the contents of their own classes. Um, but yeah, that's part of the discipline and mechanism to, to instill the values of MIB in society. Um, so these are some pictures I took in MIB classes. And, uh, so, and then they have these, these tasks, for example. Um, they say, so uh, Malayu Islam Baraja is the ideal basis for a family life in Brunei. Discuss. And then there's a working group discussing that, and then they come up with conclusions about it. Uh, things like that. That is how these classes work. But there are different topics. It's, it's really interesting. And, and also the school books, which are all collected about MIB, it's surprisingly diverse. So people who say that this is an empty signifier actually are wrong. It is not an empty signifier. This. It is quite systematized, although we may discuss the contents. Um, another aspect of the bureaucratization of Islam, of course, is law, because... Uh, when, when things are formalized, bureaucratized, that law can be part of that and is a part of that in Brunei. If we look at the history of Islamic legislation in Brunei before the colonial period, before the British indirect rule period, um, there, were, there, there was a codified uh, legal code. It was largely modeled after the famous Code of Malacca, lots of similarities, uh, and that included certain elements that can be ascribed to Islamic sources, although others probably cannot. And historical accounts also tell us about certain quite creative forms of punishment that certainly don't have anything to do with Islamic tradition. But yeah, it was a very hybrid time, uh, and uh, Islam did play a role. And nowadays, the bureaucracy claims that in the pre-colonial era, there was a full Islamic system, which was then destroyed by the secular British, and now it needs to be restored. But uh, that can be debated. Um, uh, different views are legitimate, I would say. Um, so uh, during the British residency period, what the British did was they kept the sultan in place, um, and but his power was restricted to religion, to religious affairs, and to customary affairs. And so the sultans quite effectively used this narrow field to consolidate their power. But then they had these colonial advisors who should advise them to modernize the administration of religion. And what does modernize mean in that historical context? It means codify, institutionalize, systematize. You know that from other colonial contexts as well. And that's what happened. So lots of new legal codes were produced, um, including Sharia codes. So on the one hand, Sharia law was then limited to, uh, to so-called civil law, to the personal status law, marriage affairs, and so on. But at the same time, in that field, it was then increasingly diversified and uh, further institutionalized. Now, in the post-colonial era, this was the foundation on which then uh, Islamic policies and further institutionalization developed, and it was further expanded, of course, further empowered. And we have so many institutions. I mean, I, I won't read through all of them, but you see um, it's, it's really a diverse assemblage of Islamic institutions that work together. Uh, and they have hierarchies, to some extent, hierarchies among themselves. 
Now, uh, the, latest, um, the latest development, of course, was the Sharia Penal Code order, um, which uh, is a 120 pages document, but is, is a very complex development. It fundamentally changes the legal landscape of Brunei, because for the first time, we still have this dual legal system where you have uh, the civil law that applies to all citizens and the Sharia law that applies only to Muslims. But now for the first time, there are Sharia elements that apply also to non-Muslims. So each section of the law defines whether it applies to any person or any Muslim or any male person. It depends on the details. And uh, so the Sultan um, famously was cited, who are we to say wait? And uh, he's pushing this forward. And now we have the three phases of implementation. And the idea was the first phase is only the so-called, in Malay, taxir uh, offenses that are general offenses uh, defined by a legitimate ruler and then only in the second and the third uh, period we would have the hudud and the kizaz punishments with more uh, I mean in the third phase up to the death penalty in theory although there are there are models like a declaration of repentance for example so if you are charged of blasphemy you can uh, repent to the very last moment and then you would be free of charges so it's questionable i mean it's possible but it's questionable to which extent these harsh punishments will actually be applied uh, or to which extent there is also a symbolic function uh, behind it that has certain legitimatory purposes. Um, but now uh, the second phase is still in the waiting and uh, the idea was that there's this procedural code that will be um, finalized. It should have been finalized last year and it's still not finalized. And then some international observers said, okay, the Sultan is giving in to international pressure. And again, these people don't know anything about Brunei uh, because... Uh, um, it is an enormous challenge uh, to to create this transformation because all the police staff have to be trained and they are trained right now. They have daily workshops on that. They have exchanges, for example, with Saudi Arabia to, to learn about, I mean, all the details, like how do you really implement who do punishments? People have to be trained. The judges have to be trained. And these things are happening. And the Sultan actually removed the Minister of Religious Affairs last year and this is recorded, so maybe I should not speak too much about it, but the Sultan uh, earlier this year um, made a public, angry public statement, made a surprise visit to the Ministry of Religious Affairs and uh, said, uh, why does it take so long to finalize this, this procedural code? Uh, it looks to the world as if our legal reform is empty and doesn't have any meaning. And he personally attacked certain officials. Um, and uh, now there is a... They said that uh, it would be finalized by the end of this year, and then 12 months after that we will have phase two, and 24 months after that phase three. And that's how it was planned from the beginning. So actually there's no delay, because the, the plan was from the beginning, 12 months after the procedural code. It's just that it takes so long. That as a little, I hope not too detailed explanation to clear some misunderstandings. Um, now in Brunei, when it comes to Islamic discourse, there is a top-down definition of Islam. There are no, not at all, any open controversies about Islam because there is an extreme form of discourse control in the country. So you cannot publish anything about Islam without a government permit. You cannot have your own mosque without the government permit, without the sultan seal to be more precise. And um, if you preach about Islam, all these things are monopolized by the state. And if you transgress these rules, th these are punishable offenses. So, um, and, and it doesn't happen. 
And in few, actually, there was one case of an unauthorized mosque two years ago by Bangladeshi guest workers that was then shut down. <coughs> um, so the government is very strict. And keep in mind, it's a small country, 400,000 people, 300,000 citizens, which makes it much more easy to control these things as compared to, let's say, Indonesia with 240 million people. So there are a lot of policies since the 1980s to purify Islam from, from certain un-Islamic elements. Um, that are considered as deviants or as uh, superstitious khurafat. <laughs> and um, so th this is all part of the standardization process. On the, a certain form of orthodoxy becomes part of Barakotized Islam that didn't exist before. Um, that is also related to transnational trends um, that are then filtered through the bureaucracy in the context of Islam. We have this list of banned groups that is growing and growing. And for example, the Arka movement, which was famously banned in Malaysia, in its home country, Malaysia, in 1994, was banned in Brunei already in 1991, much less noticed internationally. The Baha'i were banned already in the 1970s, precisely, and they, then members of this Baha'i association were uh, forbidden from becoming civil servants and so on. So Brunei is very, very strict about that. And certain Su um, Sufi groups, Sufi orders, certain individuals are banned. But now, uh, coming to the legal reform again, while most people speak about these harsh punishments and human rights violations and so on, and I've written about it, I mean, that, that is, of course, an issue, uh, much less noticed is the fact that many of these sections in the law obviously serve the purpose of further cementing the bureaucracy's exclusive monopoly to, I quote Graeber, define the situation or to define Islam. For example, um, five years jail, up to five years jail, for propagating beliefs that contradict Islamic law as defined by the government. Three years jail for insulting or making fun of Islamic teachings, practices, laws, and the state muftis fatwas. So the state muftis fatwas in Brunei are enjoying the force of law. Usually a fatwa is a legal opinion in Islamic tradition, um, but in the case of Brunei, they enjoy the force of law. And if you question them, that is a crime. So the state mufti is effectively the person who defines true Islam and uh, criminal deviance. Um, and there was one case when the legal reform was announced where a person submitted a reader's letter uh, to a local newspaper questioning whether stoning to death in the case of adultery is really the appropriate punishment. And he didn't, didn't even argue in general against it, but he said that uh, 100 lashes with a cane would be sufficient. And then what happened, uh, surprisingly it was printed, but uh, one week after that, uh, the Ministry of Religious Affairs published this response article in the same newspaper uh, ending with an invitation to the author to come to the ministry for further explanations. Mm -hmm. And the next news you got was that he was arrested in a joint uh, operation by the intelligence uh, agency, the police and religious officials. And then uh, the solution was, because previous, already prior to this legal reform, you had laws against these things. And, um, but then the solution was that he made a public declaration of repentance, and then he was freed of the charges. And the next step then was uh, so-called counseling which is an instrument that is used against people who are found practicing deviant things. So counseling is that you are re-educated. That's where the education and the disciplinary mechanisms come into play about true Islam. Of course, education. And I mean, from, from, the, from many, I mean, we, we learned from uh, Foucault, for example, that and we don't need Foucault for that to understand that education is never neutral. Um, and uh, although it's, it appears as something neutral and it, it claims to be neutral, and it, it hides somehow its power implications. And in the case of Brunei, also a common narrative is that, well, when, when you ask people about these changes, well, how do you explain that? They say, yeah, now we have better education. 
Um, and that is the, really the view. And that's, of course, in the interest of the bureaucracy. And I don't want to say it's right or wrong or something. I just tell you how people explain it. Um, now, speaking about these involved institutions, one of the involved institutions is the Aqida control section. Now, Aqida is a bit difficult to translate. Uh, people translate it sometimes as doctrine. In the Brunei newspaper, in the English ones, they tr translate it as the faith, which I think is not adequate. But uh, So the Aqida control section is uh, responsible for controlling Aqida-related crimes or, or transgressions. And it was the, the first agency, the predecessor agency, was formed in 1986. And there's this anecdote when there was this child possessed in a village in the Tutong district and was speaking. Uh, so the, the narrative that actually members from, from the institution told me was that this child could answer any question. And then people were queuing in front of the house of the, <coughs> in the village and wanted to ask things. And then uh, Ministry of Religious Affairs people came in and conducted an exorcism. And uh, from their view, a, a view that was growing at that time, uh, getting in contact with the spirit world or even with sorcery is something absolutely forbidden. It can threaten your soul. And so these things must be controlled. And that's actually when they had this idea, we need an institution for that. And then this institution acquired new and new functions and was working on different fields. And so all types of deviants are basically now uh, handled by that institution and also the counseling that I mentioned before. And they have these hotlines, these 24-hour hotlines, one national hotline and three regional hotlines where you can call and report things where you suspect that there's deviance at play and then they will treat it confidentially and they will investigate. And they actually gave me access to uh, the statistics of their work uh, from the last years. And they, I mean, they always have cases on a quite diverse range of, of things. But usually this was always handled outside the court through soft mechanisms that would then end with voluntary counseling. Because then people, there was no strict legal force before the legal reform, but, and I asked them, so how do you do that, that they come? And they said, yeah, maybe they're afraid or did they just accept it? And so it, it worked somehow. And they cooperate with other government institutions. And they have this exhibition of uh, deviant objects. So these are, there are actually two exhibitions, one at the Ministry of Religious Affairs premises and the other by the Faith Control section. And they, at, at the one uh, exhibition, they have objects that have been confiscated at the borders by people bringing in deviant objects, including books, including many things. And the other is things that have been confiscated within Brunei. So about the books, for example, you, if you bring an Islamic book to Brunei, you must declare it at the border. Um, because there might be a falsification of Islam in the book. Even if there's a typo in a Quranic verse, that's a problem. And then if you want to distribute this commercially, then the experts from the ministry have to go through it to make sure that there is no deviance from true Islam. And that's why sometimes it takes many months before a book can be sold, because it first needs to be, it has to go to the censorship, and then, uh, then and they say they don't have enough resources. So. Such uh, transgressions are on showcase at this exhibition that to, to translate is an exhibition of, of objects that lead to uh, deviating from the Akita. Um, oh no, that was actually at the Pusat Dahu Islamia, at the missionary center, but it's, it's related to the Ministry of Religious Affairs. And then you see these things related to magic practices, which are very common in Southeast Asia, in the Malay world. And which have been quite normal. And for example, there's this cooking pot that can increase your business uh, sales. That's the idea. And uh, that was confiscated at a restaurant. Or you, you have this 
deer skin and I didn't even see it, but he told me that it depicts a person sitting there. And, he, and the officer told me that he himself at his parents' house had precisely such a deer skin in the past and they didn't even know, they didn't have the education that this is deviant, but now they know it's deviant and it was confiscated. So again, these are these socio-legal changes, so to speak. This becomes outlawed, becomes socially marginalized and processes of change are going on. But then also some a bit more weird stuff like uh, powder that is said to make you invisible and Baju uh, Kabal, a shirt that makes you uh, invincible um, and uh, things like that. So, and, and I thought, okay, this is all about uh, disenchanting the world. Bureaucracy disenchants the world, but it's not at all the case um, because nobody goes into that room at night. As they told me, there's strange sounds coming out of it and all these objects have been cleaned by high-ranking officials. Um, but nevertheless, they say they are so powerful because there's sihir involved. Sihir is sorcery, and that is not something from, in their view, uh, not something from folk tradition, but it's something that is in the, in the core sources of Islam. And uh, so, um, and I mean, <laughs> this is recorded, so I won't tell another anecdote, but this is a, um, our very things I've taken very seriously, and uh, people are working on the effects of it in the democracy. Now, moving a bit back from that, uh, I try to talk to people who may be considered deviant uh, under the MIB discourse. And I found this graffiti sprayer from Brunei, who um, there was this, this youth event, and he, he was showing his work, and we, we spoke about things, and he was very frank about you know, his lifestyle, his views. But then when it came to MIB and to the legal reform, um, he passionately defended it, and he said, well, you know, the legal reform, the Sharia Penal Code order, that's not a product of the government, that's God's law, and who am I to question it? Um, whether I follow it or not is another question, that's my personal choice, but this, and, and he said, I know that you think MIB is a government brainwash, but uh, in fact, it's our tradition. So you see uh, these internalizations of the hegemonic discourse, sometimes happen at places where you don't expect them, whereas if you talk to an MIB lecturer in the class while there's group work going on, um, you get very differentiated views on these things. It's, it's uh, very diverse, so that there, again, this diversity of reactions uh, to the attempted exercise of classificatory power. One more example, or two more. I hope you're not getting tired. Um, this is also something you find across Southeast Asia. These are the Tumpat Kramat. Uh, Kramat is, uh, there can be a Kubur Kramat, more specifically, a grave containing power. And in that case, there are two narratives who is actually buried there. But the tendency is that the belief is that there is an, a missionary of Arab descent who was in Brunei and who died in Brunei and who was buried there. And in the past, people went there with certain wish wishes, with the niyat. They asked for something. They want to get in contact with the spirit. Maybe they burned something or they put some water or some, actually I found soy sauce, they put something there and, uh, and then they ask for something. But now, since the 1980s, since the 1990s, when these discursive changes happened and these purification policies happened, this was increasingly considered deviant. Now what uh, the local Sharia Affairs Office in the Tutong district did was to put up a signboard next to it with a warning and amaram. And the warning tells you that uh, you may, uh, so if you do deviant things there, there can be four months imprisonment, a monetary fine, and then there's a Quranic verse that you can interpret in a manner that it announces hellfire to you if you do deviant things there. You can interpret in that manner. And that was before the latest legal reform. So in the past, 
there are some accounts of people witnessing from the neighborhood you know chicken being slaughtered there or something like that it's actually right next to a main road that doesn't happen anymore and the head of the Akhida control section told me they are doing surveillance at the place and he said it has become quiet there but still if you look you find these coins that are thrown on it people tell you about it so but there's now this circumvention that's again the reaction so everyday practices of resistance that, that doesn't mean an open confrontation but you adapt to it but fewer and fewer people do it there's certainly a social change going on it's not an accepted normalized practice anymore but it's it's a problem it's outlawed and it's socially marginalized if you go to another shrine in the same district that is not uh, located to the main road you find more vivid traces so to speak of of, uh, of usage and the neighbor was told me about people staying there overnight but he said nowadays it's mainly foreigners indonesians indonesian guest workers younger bruneians really don't do it anymore again the education component um, but yeah, these things exist, and I will come back to them in my very brief preview on Singapore at the end. Um, now, okay, the next example are the Bomo. The Bomo, in Indonesia also called Dukun, are healers, magicians, people working on the supernatural. They have been central institutions of village life uh, in the Malay world. Um, in the past, if you read Malay Magic, Walter Wilton Skeet, published 1900, 600 pages, wonderful book, you can find these descriptions of all the villages across the Malay world with the Kerama shrines, with uh, actually Chinese and Malays together going there, even uh, there was some element of, of... Anyway, so the Bomos have, have been all over the place, but now uh, they are considered deviant, and the bureaucracy calls the public to report them, and for example, in 2004, there were 38 arrests in 2005, 55 arrests. In 2014, the authorities told me they believe there are still hundreds of BOMOs operating underground in Brunei, but 70-80% of them are foreigners. And the locals are mainly elders, so there's not really a new generation coming up, although I found one exception, but just one. Um, so again, these are changes, and these, that's again the classificatory power of the state that somebody, a central prestigious village institution becomes a marginalized, socially marginalized criminal and has to adapt to this new environment. And the legal reform, for the first time, directly addresses the BOMO. So before that, as the authorities told me, the legal basis for persecution or for prosecution was a bit shaky, but now under the new law we have this, these provisions that um, practicing or advertising black magic uh, that would be ilmuhitam uh, or claiming to, I, I cite to know an event or a matter that is beyond human understanding or knowledge or to worship any person place nature or any object thing or animal in any manner contrary to islamic law for example believing that objects or animals possess certain powers increase wealth grant wishes heal diseases or bring good luck all this is now punishable with jail terms so this is um and all of that is, of course, part of the BOMO practices. So and it's not just the BOMOs who are affected, but also their customers, of course. And people still believe in that. And if you ask people, even at the centers of power, everybody knows somebody who knows somebody who knows a BOMO or who does, some, who does, does things that are somewhat BOMO-like. Um, this gentleman, for example, um, he has customers coming in every day and until late night. And uh, so, but he strictly avoids to be called Bomo. He's an orang pandai, and uh, he's, he's the, called the chiku in this group, the teacher. 
uh, but he says he's not a bomber. He says, all I do is just Quran-based, nothing else. Now, when it comes to the narratives of his followers, of the Anagua, uh, especially his core followers, when they tell you about what he does, it's very much, uh, to me, it sounds very similar to what a bomber does. Not just the exorcisms, but also some supernatural things happening, miracles, basically. But then he has good contacts to the highest echelons of, of power, basically, <laughs> and... But he has been under <coughs> surveillance. That's what uh, his followers tell me. So some people still operate, others don't, and you need to have strategies. Um, and since this rep is reported, I cannot tell you what this picture about is, but I might do later. Um, so, but then new things are happening. Unintended processes are happening. And one of these new things is the Islamic Medicine Center, the Darushifa, which is something that originates from Malaysia. Uh, Harun Din, who is a Malaysian, <coughs> famous Malaysian Islamic scholar, he has been the <coughs> spiritual leader of the Islamist Opposition Party in Malaysia. He just died, actually, at the Stanford Medical Hospital a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, he, he formed that institution in Malaysia, and now they brought it to Brunei in 2007. And now what is happening there is that you can become a state-certified Islamic healer. So some former BOMO, um, they can attend that program for one year so there is a standardized curriculum there are course books and uh, you attend these classes you have the examination at the end and then you you get your certificate and so you legitimize your work within the parameters of of the mib state basically because this is a registered organization they uh, discuss what they do with the authorities to make sure that there's no transgression going on but then what they do is what most would have done in the past there is this house, that, uh, this white house, where they have these exorcism nights. I attended one, actually. And uh, there are people coming in who are possessed, and then uh, Islamic uh, scholars are basically cleaning, cleaning that, and they sell products like this water that has been prayed into um, collectively. That's a long story. But just to show you one thing, that, that certainly wasn't the plan when the Bomos were outlawed, but then there is some limited space of agency. And actually, the, the Aqida control people told me that they are not entirely happy with this institution. So even within the bureaucracy, there's disagreement. Uh, because then there was one case of somebody claiming to have the certificate, but he hadn't. Another person had the certificate, but then molested a woman during a treatment. He wasn't even allowed to treat the woman, but then he claimed he was possessed by jinn. And so there are many, many details. But it, it's only partly controlled. I mean, that's how social life is. Um, but they do, they work for the government. I mean, they clean um, the national hospital, for example, they're called in when there are things happening at the hospital, it's taken from their homepage. They told me that they have been at the Ministry of Religious Affairs at a certain building. They have cleaned certain blocks from the university. So they're regularly called in. There was even this news article on a mass hysteria at an all-Arabic, uh, all-girls Arabic school, where, which had to be closed for two or three days. That was while I was in Brunei. And then, uh, Darushifa was called in and they cleaned it. In the past, that would have been done by Bomo. And I also heard one story uh, about a bridge that was opened uh, between, or that was prepared to be opened between Malaysia and Singapore, uh, between Malaysia and Brunei. So the Malaysian side brought a Bomo and the Brunei side brought Darushifa to clean it to make sure that nothing happens. Um, <coughs> so that was Brunei. And now, very briefly, um, to remind you, the Sultan I cite him, uh, says religious pluralism and liberal Islam is deviationism and will never be related to Brunei. And uh, now 
I must tell you, I haven't really conducted field work in Singapore yet. I just stayed there for a month and I'm, I hope to do it. Uh, and, uh, but I think there are some really interesting contrastive features in the case of Singapore. And, and I hope uh, that you can correct me if I say anything wrong about Singapore, um, because uh, we have somebody in the room who knows much better about these things than I do. But uh, so in Singapore, uh, the, it's also an quite authoritarian state. Um, but the approach to bureaucratizing Islam is very different. It's mainly one institution, MUIS, and there is the office of the Mufti, which I think is part of MUIS, and um, the emphasis is very different. So these are, for example, pictures I took at the, at the MUIS building, where there's the definition of the Singapore Muslim identity, um, which is adaptive, inclusive, progressive, contributive. So these are, of course, it's a completely different tone than in the case of Brunei, and there was also an emphasis of the secular state that is uh, accepted and upheld. So this is not incompatible with Islam in that view, but uh, it's part uh, of a modern progressive agenda in the understanding of Muiz. And at the same time, Muiz has good context with uh, institutions of uh, Brunei's religious bureaucracy. And I saw at that room also actually gifts from Brunei institutions. And so it's complicated. The relationship is complicated, I would say, but uh, generally friendly. But then it's, it's a different type of Islam that is institutionalized in Singapore. Um, although, of course, there's complete agreement about the basics, you know, Sunni, Shafi'i, and so on. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm more interested in the boundaries. Um, and now if we speak about the Karama shrines, if you go to Singapore, there are old sources. They were all over the place in Singapore in the 1930s and 40s. Many have disappeared, but because of development projects. But then some are there. And Again, there's a signboard erected next to one, but for a very different reason. Actually, it's marketed as a ca Malay cultural heritage by the government. And there's even here a signboard where you can find the Karama. So completely different, different story, but just next door and uh, same cultural area, um, same language, but different context of state power, different form of bureaucratizing Islam. And uh, there are quite a few places. And even, I mean, the office of the caretaker of, of Karamat shrines. There are still Karamat shrines in Singapore with caretakers that are constantly on the site, which was quite common in the past. And, um, and th these yellow clothes, for example, that you, it's typically, I mean, they, they have also different meanings, but you typically see them at these Karamat shrines. And uh, in Brunei, the authorities told me that how they confiscated these yellow clothes. And I could not detect them anymore anywhere. But for example, one person told me a magic dagger that was wrapped in a yellow cloth. But it was secretly hidden at, the uh, at his home. And so, so, but in Singapore, this is not an issue. Although, of course, there are different opinions about these things in Singaporean countries. Some people reject certain elements as superstitious, others don't. But it's, you are free to have these different positions in Singapore. Um, now, I think I spoke too long, so I won't go into much detail. But then, I mean, you, you can have these newspaper articles about your own shrine. This one is at Bukit Faber, actually, and the idea is that there's a Javanese princess there. And I saw people after school going there, young, you know, schoolboy, praying to the spirit, asking for good examination results. Probably that was would be my guess, or that's what I also talked about with the caretaker. And yeah, and and, and for the bomo, I mean, in Singapore now nowadays. The, of course, there's this idea that these things disappear with urbanization, but in fact, they don't, but they go urban if you let them. <laughs> and now you have this internet advertising for BOMO services, and you can buy this business charm bottle, which would be confiscated in Brunei immediately. Um, 
again, that doesn't mean that everything, everybody's happy with it, but, but it's a different context. And when it comes to uh, intra-religious, to, to the dealing of the diversity of opinions, groups that are banned in Brunei and Malaysia, like the Ahmadiyya and Shia, they have their mosques, their community centers in Singapore, although it becomes a bit complicated in the case of, uh, of the Ahmadiyya, because there is a fatwa, actually, by, by Muiz, uh, that the Ahmadiyya is um, deviant. But I also heard that within Muiz, there's not exactly agreement or, or people are not so happy. Some people may not be so happy about this. So there's, a, again, it's a contested issue how to deal with these things. But generally speaking, um, it's a different framework. And diversity is dealt with in different ways. Um, and now to conclude, I tried to present to you the conceptual contours of an envisioned project studying the bureaucratization of Islam as a social legal phenomenon in Southeast Asia from a comparative perspective. And now this framework that I just presented uh, with maybe some too excessive empirical details uh, should be pro productively questioned, modified, and further deepened in the process. So that's just the beginning. As I try to make clear the state's exercise of classificatory power is at the very center of analytic attention and at the same time uh, it's not just the functional power-oriented aspects uh, that I'm looking at but also these meaning-making capacities of the bureaucratization of Islam and these micro-dynamics that you can only observe on the ground um, and these things that only people who are involved can tell you. These are interesting uh, for, for me and for the project and what is most interesting is where these categorical schemes of Islam differ um, and where these boundaries of the acceptable or unacceptable definition of religion are then part of that bureaucratization process. And with that, yeah, thank you for your attention. I'm looking forward to your questions. Thanks. Thank you.